Okay. So uh, welcome to this afternoon with Steve Armstrong. Um, the subject is Buddhist personality types, which is going to be a really fascinating afternoon, I think, for all of us, I'm hoping. And uh, for those of you who don't know Steve, I'm just going to read a little bit about his bio. Um, if you were here this morning, he gave the talk, and I'm just repeating myself or what was read, but here we go. Steve uh, has studied Dhamma and practiced insight meditation since 1975, more than a few years. He was a monk for five years in Burma under the guidance of Sayadaw Upandita, where he undertook intensive silent practice of insight and loving-kindness meditations. He studied Buddhist psychology, Abhid Abhidhamma, with Sayadaw U... Is it? Zagara. Sayadaw U Zagara in Australia, and he presents it in a practical and easily understood way. He continues his practice today under the guidance of Sayadaw Uteshaniya at the Shweyo Min Meditation Center in Burma, in Rangoon. And Steve uh, lives on Maui and in Seattle, and has been leading meditation retreats internationally since 1990. So we're delighted to have you here with us at the Sati Center, Steve, and welcome. You know how it is when you hear somebody give a bio of you? You wonder, who are they talking about? <laughs> I, I mean, sure, I did all that stuff, but that, that's not how I think of myself, which is probably what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, um, let me think. How do we begin? It's always hard to know just how to begin. Um... Let me just um, introduce the topic this way. Uh, a lot of us have come to uh, mindfulness practice through um, uh, retreats or classes or reading books, and we, we see some benefit to mindfulness. And a lot of the teachings that we hear in the mindfulness training uh, or the uh, meditation retreat, insight, Vipassana retreats, is material taken from what's called the sutras, or the discourses of the Buddha. And this, the whole compilation of the discourses is one, what's called one section or one basket of the teachings of the Buddha. There's another whole section of teachings called the uh, Vinaya, which is all of the rules for monks and nuns, which include a lot of uh, elaborate do's and don'ts for monks. That's another whole basket of teachings from the Buddha. And then the third teachings uh, basket of teachings from the Buddha is called the Abhidhamma, which is usually translated as either higher Dharma or popularly known as Buddhist psychology. And it is a compilation of what's spoken of in the sutras. But it's laid out in a very kind of a pragmatic, organized, 
it's the, it's the section of the Buddhist teaching that is all list. You know, the three characteristics, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Faculties, the Five Powers, the 52 Mental States, the 121 different kinds of consciousness, the 14 defilements, the 29, you know, wholesome states. You know, it's, that's the Abhidhamma. You get all the lists. And for the most part, you don't hear them here in the West as a very kind of organized body of teaching, the Abhidhamma. So... But on the contrary, in Burma, everything is taught from the Abhidhamma. That's what they start with the Abhidhamma. And if you're, if you're not teaching based on what's in the Abhidhamma, then you're not from Burma. <laughs> so <clears throat> they have that kind of um, respect for it, I think, is the word. Uh, and appreciation for it, and they've built their whole uh, meditation systems, or they've developed their meditation systems based on the information as it's presented in the Abhidhamma and the commentaries to the Abhidhamma. So we in the West don't hear much about it. Uh, we hear some of the lists, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the Familiar Eightfold Path and things. But what the Abhidhamma does is it takes this thing called life, and recognizes the stream of consciousness that runs through life as moment-to-moment experience. And in any one moment of experience, there are elements of physical experience, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, sensations in the body. There's also the mind that's present knowing it, citta, the chitta or the mind is always accompanied by some number of mental states like mindfulness or delusion, uh, loving kindness or hatred, aversion, desire, or many different um, perceptual, affective, and cognitive functions of the mind. Okay, are you still with me? I'm starting out a little bit heavy here, but I'm just trying to get to kind of from out here down to oh, Buddhist personality types. So we're, we're in the Abhidhamma. We're talking about the different sections of the Abhidhamma, talking about the stream of consciousness, life from beginning, from birth to death. And then we're looking at one moment in that whole stream of consciousness, or the whole stream of life, which is a moment of consciousness which includes some number of physical elements and some number of mental states and the fact of uh, consciousness itself. So the Abhidhamma is an elaboration and an articulation of these four experienceable, empirical realities. Material world, the mind that knows, the mental states that accompany knowing, and Nibbana, a reality, the only unconditioned reality. But mostly we're dealing with the three conditioned realities in all of our practice. In the stream of consciousness, in any one moment, there is a synthesis of all these mental states, in some combination or other, and there is some combination of physical elements. And the Abhidhamma shows how they are put together in a moment of generosity, how they're put together in a moment of hatred, how they're put together in a moment of deep insight, how they're put together in a moment of accessing the unconditioned and gaining some stage of enlightenment and how they're put together in the mind of an arahant, a fully enlightened being. 
which is kind of fascinating. But it, what I discovered from the Abhidhamma is that everything I had ever experienced from you know, childhood to all the challenges, emotional, hormonal challenges of teenage years and adult years too, and uh, all the experiences of uh, meditation, both deep and profound insight, as well as deep and unprofound torments, as well as uh, deep jhanas, or practicing deep concentrated states of meditation, as well as all the progress of insight, different uh, knowledges from the progress of insight, as well as all the drug experiences I'd ever experienced. They are all elaborated in infinite detail in the Abhidhamma without a reference to a single person being there. So they're all laid out as the impersonal elements of reality that give rise to these experiences that we call me. But it's all laid out in the Abhidhamma without reference to there being anyone to whom all of this is happening. So in this elaboration of how each moment is synthesized with these three elements, mind, material, and mental states, uh, it also shows what happens to the stream of consciousness as you practice meditation, as you gain insight, as you get liberated, as you gain jhana or absorption. And it also shows what happens at the time of death and how we transition from one or, you don't have to believe this, uh, but as, as Manindra, one of our teachers would say, you don't have to believe this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> uh, it shows what happens as we approach death and why the moment of death is so important because of how it conditions the next moment of life in a new existence. I won't say birth, because it's sometimes conception, it's sometimes spontaneous birth, depending on where you're born. And what it purports to show is how there is a recognizable thread from one life to the next. So, as I mentioned this morning, if, for those of you who are here, you know, many of us have had children. When a baby comes into the world, it doesn't take very long before you realize, you begin to distinguish what their personality is like. They aren't all clones and act-alikes. They come in with their own set demeanors and personalities kind of like in place or some foundation for their personality in place. And we have to wonder, where does this come from? Right? Like, why is, you know, I got one niece, when she was born, she's like this little tulku. She's like so bright and so connecting. She's just right there. Just and her sister is not that way. <laughs> and, you know, same parents, same cultural, family condition, but they're very distinctively different, well, personalities or foundations upon which the personality will be built. Now the personality, of course, is deeply influenced and conditioned by parents, beliefs, attitudes, behaviors. It's deeply conditioned by the culture you grow up in, 
the religion you're brought up in, the weather you're grown, un, grown up in, the political system, economic system, every educational system, class system, everything about our life experience conditions this basic stream of consciousness. But we come into the world before all those layers of conditioning take place. So there's already what we could call, or what I'm going to call, the default network, the default uh, basis for personality. So today, what I want to look at is how we can, what we can do to recognize our own default basis of personality, where it came from, how we can see it at play in our life, and what we can do about it, both enhance the wholesome and address in a skillful way the unwholesome. This is a long ways away from what you hear in most you know, instructions for being mindful or going, even going on a retreat. I didn't have any interest in Abhidhamma. I didn't know anything about it until I was in uh, Burma and I was in the monastery and I'd been practicing retreats in America for about 10 years and I'd been practicing intensive meditation 20 hours a day in the monastery for, monastery for about three years. And then one of my Burmese teachers wanted to learn English. So he got an Abhidhamma book in English to help him learn English by me reading the Abhidhamma to him and explaining what the words meant. Of course, the Abhidhamma was like Greek, it was like a foreign language to me. So I got this book and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, how, in the, how am I going to talk about this to him? I can't, he doesn't speak much English and I don't know anything about Abhidhamma, but that was my assignment, help him learn English. So I waded through or waded into this Abhidhamma book and it was so complex and such a different way of thinking about life and our minds that I just had to really study it. And the only way I could make sense of it was to take what was in each chapter and diagram it out into a big chart. So I got, this, I got these big pieces of cardboard and I got these color pencils and things and I charted out every chapter of the Abhidhamma. That's how I learned it. And of course, I didn't have much success teaching this guy English, but nevertheless, I learned the Abhidhamma. <laughs> so that's when I got this understanding that, oh my gosh, this is really fascinating. This is an elaborate, you know, kind of impersonal description of everything that we experience in life. One section of it is about conditioning. Now I talk about, we talk about conditioning, you know, we get conditioned by our parents, we get conditioned by our school, we get conditioned by each other, peers. We get conditioned by our prior experiences. What we don't often acknowledge so easily is we get conditioned by the future. We do. It's easy to understand that if you've done something in the past, it will condition the present moment, right? Are you with me? Okay. What's more difficult to understand is that what happens in the future also conditions the present moment, right? Okay, think about this. You're going to die, right? 
Does anybody question that? You're going to die. Does that have any effect on what you do now? Ever? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? That future event deeply conditions our present moment. That's just a, gr a very graphic and dramatic example of how the future conditions the present. When you first started meditation, or if you started mindfulness practice, did you have some idea that, well, maybe this will help me calm down, maybe this will get a handle on my stress, maybe this will lead to enlightenment, maybe this will be good for me in some way? Did you have any idea like that? Yeah, we had some idea like that. And so we're will because of that future potential, we're willing to put up with, you know, restless mind, aching mind, bo achy body, pain, you know, being confused, because we expect a certain result in the future. The future conditions the present, as much as the past conditions the present. Well, there are a whole number of conditioning relationships in one section of the Abhidhamma, called conditional relations. And one of them is called continuity conditioning. Things that, there's repetition conditioning. The more you do something, the more, it, the more impact it has on how you are, right? Repetition. Conditioning by repetition. Sometimes there's conditioning by proximity. When things are really close to you, they have a bigger impact on you than when they're far away, whether it's the future or the past or someone or anything else. So this is continuity conditioning. And one of the continuity conditioning is what keeps going on, what has preceded tends to immediately condition the subsequent. So, in this particular topic today, we're talking about mental legacies. So you know, the, you know the theory of karma, or you know the law of karma, that says when you act with a wholesome, skillful attitude of mind, the result will be pleasant. Somewhere. It'll be both immediately and in the far future pleasant. If you act or when you act with an unwholesome, unskillful state of mind, you know, greed, hatred, delusion, confusion, jealousy, anger, whatever, when you act like that, the result is surely to be unpleasant. Right? Okay, what, what we're looking at today is, in the past we have performed a lot of wholesome activities. We've practiced a lot of generosity, we've practiced a lot of ethical morality, we've practiced a lot of patience, loving kindness, awareness, we've practiced uh, renunciation, we've exercised a lot of energy. We've just done a lot of good, wholesome things which have imprinted on the mind. They're not all manifesting right now, but they've imprinted the mind. We've also done, well, unfortunately, we've also done a lot of unskillful things. We've been impatient, we've been angry, we've been jealous, we've been fearful, depressed. You know, the list goes on. There's a long list of unskillful things that we've also done. They too have imprinted on the mind. Those imprints of wholesome actions and unwholesome actions are carried along moment to moment in our stream of consciousness. When conditions ripen, they'll give rise to their effect. Just because we are, um, pass away in one lifetime doesn't mean that the karmic effect can't be uh, felt in a future lifetime. 
So we are currently carrying with us this bag of karmic actions that are sure to gonna give sure to give their result, either in this lifetime or in the future. Okay, are you with me? Okay. I know it's a little bit dry getting into this, but we'll get there. What the continuity conditioning or conditioning by continuity is pointing to is this baggage. It's looking at the cumulative baggage that we carry from the past continuously, moment to moment to moment to moment, and how it affects us. One section of it is called mental legacies. And there are six kinds of mental legacies that we're born with. Six areas, arenas of mental legacy. One of them is karma. You know, all of our karmic acts, the wholesome ones, we're carrying around this bag of, or embedded in the mind stream, is the potential to experience the results of those karmic acts. When conditions ripen, those karmic acts will give rise to a fruit, like wholesome or unwholesome. Another of the um, mental legacies is what I call the parami profile. You know the paramis? There are these ten wholesome qualities of mind, qualities and behaviors, like uh, generosity, renunciation, wisdom, effort, patience, truthfulness, uh, resolve, loving-kindness, equanimity, and morality. Was that ten? <laughs> Pay attention now. Okay, so there's these, there's these ten uh, wholesome qualities. And we all have some, you would say, some development of them. We might be more patient than truthful. We might be more generous than loving. We might be more equanimity than resolved. But we all have, it's like a soundboard of the mind. You know, if you have a soundboard and you've got ten um, range of uh, frequencies, you can be high on this one, low on that one, and you can adjust them. Well, throughout our past lives, lives we have reached a certain development of each of these paramis. When we're born into this lifetime, that's our default setting. Whatever was developed in the past lives is our default setting in this life. Do you follow me? Okay. So that's the wholesome qualities. There's also this index of potential torments. <laughs> you know, what are called the latent defilements or the latent calaces torments of the mind. We've also acted on them in the past in very unskillful ways. Attachment to sensual pleasure, attachment to uh, life, uh, aversions of all sorts, fear, anger, rage, depression, frustration, disappointment, all kinds of uh, aversion. Conceit or really comparing mind in the Buddhist uh, psychology. It's not just conceit like feeling superior to others. If you feel superior to others, that's called superiority conceit. If you feel inferior to others, it's called inferiority conceit. And, you know, the Buddha being as thorough as he was, there's also equality conceit. How can you win? I mean, you're going to get caught one way or another. So, 
we've also had that. And the way to see conceit in your life is, or in your mind, is whenever you see yourself comparing yourself to others or others with you. Or even yourself with an ideal type or your former self with your current self. Anybody ever have any mana active in their life? It's like it's rampant. Well, not only for me, right? Okay. And then there's wrong view. Wrong views. Oh my goodness. Uh, what are wrong views? Wrong views are wrong ways of understanding reality that inevitably lead to suffering. My teacher, one of my teachers in Burma, Saito Upandita, he used to say, we, we labor under multiple layers of delusion. Ooh, sounds heavy. Multiple layers of delusion. So let me just give you the first one. The first one is, do you know what's going on moment to moment? Just nod your head, yes or no. Do you know what's going on moment to moment? Okay, so when we don't know what's going on, we're, we're deluded. We're, we're, we're just out of touch, right? And in case you haven't recognized when that happens, you know when you try to meditate and you come into the hall with all good intention and you sit down, I'm going to pay attention to my breath and or other momentary experiences for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, half hour, and you promptly, promptly space out, right? You just, your mind just doesn't, the mind, your mind has a mind of its own, right? It just goes wherever it wants to, wants to go. It goes into the past, it goes into the future, it tries to solve problems, it schemes, it strategizes, it does all kinds of things. It explains, it rehearses, it does all kinds of things except be present. And when the mind is doing that, as I mentioned this morning, when the mind is lost in thought like that, you don't know. You don't know that you're thinking. You don't know where you are, you don't know if you're sitting or lying down or standing. You don't know your gender, your age, your ethnic group. You don't know which country you're in. You don't know. You know, you are, well, let me just say, you're really deluded. Right? And that's just the first layer of delusion that we suffer under. So the second layer of delusion is, you know, when we, when we are paying attention and we think we're, we can, you know, we you do walking meditation here. I saw you this morning, some of you, doing walking meditation. And you know, when you're walking, you can say, stepping, 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 to kind of know that you're walking, right? Actually, what is a step? Is there such a thing as a step? Only as a concept, isn't there? But actually, in the actual stepping, what is the experience of stepping? Well, the experience of stepping is lifting the foot. And what is the, what is the experience of lifting? Well, it's tightness, tension, pressure, vibrating, tingling, lightness, right? If you're not observing stepping as that empirically verifiable sequence of sensations, diluted. Okay. And if you think it's your foot, that's another delusion. <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about layers of delusion. Hello, anybody have any of those? Okay. So there's... There's this whole section of uh, mental legacy that we're carrying around. Layers of delusion. One last. Well, I should never say one last. There's always more. Is skeptical doubt. Do you have... And the, and the way you can see this in your life. Some people are very decisive in their life. They just get an idea, make a decision, go for it. Some people get an idea, get all the data to support one way or another, and never make a decision. Do you know which way you are? 
Yeah. I mean, I'm a decisive. I'm just like, I can make an impulse decision and be willing to live with the consequences no matter what. Boom, go. You know? And I say, I never experienced doubt until later. <laughs> but there are other people that just won't make a decision. They're so paralyzed by doubt that even, if, even with all the research and all the benefits laid out and all the limitations and all the pros and cons of both ways of making the decision, still can't make a decision. Doubt, paralyzed by doubt. Okay. So these, this index of mental, potential mental torments is also a default setting in the mind. So we've got the wholesome settings, we've got the karma settings, we've got the potential default setting of uh, unwholesome things. <sighs> Isn't that enough? No, there's a couple more. There is the basic mentality. And most of us are familiar with the three Buddhist personality types. The greed type, the deluded type, and the aversive type. Right? Well, I mean, those are the, those are the big three. There's another three, actually, that, go, that correlate with them. The faith type, the uh, discerning wisdom type, and the speculative thinking type. Do you know which one you are? Do you know which one is high on your... You know, so there's a way of monitoring to looking at our life, because we're gonna we're gonna do this this afternoon. I got a worksheet here for each one of you. You know, we're gonna fill in the blanks. Yeah. So you listed those six types. Um, are you only one of the six, or can you be? There are six. Or, or is that yeah, there, are six there are six mental legacies, and there's a, like ten paramis in one of them. There's seven uh, potential defilements in the other, and there's all kinds of karma in the third. There's likes and dislikes. And what's the other one here? Likes, dis dislikes, and tendencies. Tendencies. How many tendencies are you got? <laughs> okay, so there's a lot. Okay. So it's not like we're going to say, "Oh, I'm a greed type." Well or I'm a reverse type. There's, you know, there may be a prevailing, predominant flavor or direction with a lot of subtypes, or a lot of subcategories within it. So we'll, we'll, okay. we'll, get, to, we'll get to review. And, and the reason for doing this, let me just explain, the reason for identifying how we are affected by our default uh, baseline mentality is so that when we identify it and we see, oh yeah, this is really, I have a lot of generosity, but I don't have much loving kindness. I have a lot of equanimity, but not much resolve. Then, if you see that about yourself, which we'll get to later this afternoon, you can turn over the page and you can see where your type is and what practice you have to do to address it. Three refuges, three trainings, four mind turnings, four protective reflections, four divine abidings, Mahasi Sayadaw, six factors leading to good dharmas, ten paramis, five controlling faculties, the neuroplasticity factors of the minds, and the two guardians of the world. So, you know, it, we're going to do this for a purpose so that we can figure out how we're going to spend the rest of our life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're going to get into it, you might as well get into it. Okay, so you, you're, kind of, you're kind of with me so far? what we're doing. We're going to be looking at, we're going to try to see from our own behavior, our choices in life, maybe what kind of career we have, what kind of uh, relationships we have, 
what kind of relationship we have to people, to money, to careers, to life itself, to all these things. We're going to look at our life and try to, try to just discern beneath the surface of things what is the prevailing ground of likelihood that we do this. And we can look at our whole life. We don't have to just look at, you know, today. We can look at, oh yeah, my whole life I've been this way. I've always made decisions this way. I've always... So then you can fill in the blank. Impatient type. Oh, there's actually no such thing as an impatient type. But we can do that. Okay? Okay. That was just an introduction. So which one do you want to start with? Maybe let's start with the wholesome ones, huh? Everybody's got some... Okay, would you help pass these out or just send them around so everybody can get one? And you can send them that way. <laughs> yeah, here. And have to fill in the blanks. And throughout the afternoon, as, as I'm just yabbering away, I mean, I can talk all afternoon, but if it's not important or useful to you, just ask a question. You know, let me know what's important to you to help understand uh, what we're going through. I'm willing to take uh, interruptions and questions and comments and whatever will help you uh, kind of understand this a little better. Okay? Yeah. Okay, we have extra pens if anybody needs them. There, there, there's the need right over there. Now, if you're here participating in this thing, you've actually got to make, you've got to fill in these blanks. There's no just thinking, oh yeah, 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 but I don't want to make a choice. No, you're going to have to be decisive today. You're actually going to have to decide which one. So that when you, at the end of the day, you can look at this thing and say, Oh my goodness. Yeah, right. Okay. This is what i got to do for practice. Okay? I'm going to check. I'm going to walk around, make sure everybody's got these blanks filled in. Because <laughs> if you just do it as a kind of a mental, a mental Oh yeah, I understand, I understand. You're not doing it. You've got to actually commit to it. Yeah? You must be a discerning wisdom type. Discerning wisdom type? You know, the discerning wisdom type is the wholesome aspect of the aversive type. You nailed it. Yeah, I am the aversive type. But the, 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 the benefit of the aversive, of having an aversive personality, is that, you know, when you get really angry with somebody, it's like this. When you get really angry with somebody, you, it, you can find the most subtle little thing that they do that pisses you off. It's just like, <laughs> very discerning in an unskillful way. But when you practice, that same level of discernment is wisdom. Right? Okay. So there's, there, is a, there, there, is a, there is a wholesome transformative effect from practice, even with your unwholesome uh, default setting. Okay, so we're going to start with the wholesome... Uh, the wholesome factors of the paramis. Now, on the back side of your paper is the list of the ten paramis, about in the middle of the page, 
on the, on the left-hand side, there's these ten paramis. And you can see their generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, insight, um, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness, and equanimity. Got it? Okay, so we're going to be... We're going to be looking at those ten factors of mind in this way. I would like you to consider those ten factors and decide which three are most, do you think, are most developed in your life. Do you really feel like you're more generous? I mean, you might just, on the back side of this paper, just kind of on a ten-point scale of generosity, I'm about a three. On morality, I'm a seven. On renunciation, I'm a... Now, you can't just guess at this because I'm going to ask you, why did you pick these numbers? When you identify which of the three are the highest number, why did you pick that? Why did you say you were more generous than you are loving? Tell me, what? how does your behavior in life confirm this choice. If you've, if you've identified as generosity as your highest uh, index of, of, of parami, how did you do that? How did you, what kind of behavior displays that to you? And then, not only that, what has been the benefit of having that quality as a default setting in your life? Okay, so first you go through the list of ten paramis, and you just get a sense of, on a ten-point scale, mm, I'm about a three of this, a four of that, a six of this, a nine of that, and just go down through those ten. I better do this with you, or I'm going to lose track of what I'm supposed to be doing here. Everybody got a piece of paper? Everybody's got a piece of paper? Okay. Let's see. How am I doing? Generosity. Mm. Well, I think. Renunciation? renunciation is uh, how much can you do without? <laughs> you know, meaning how how much how uh, renunciation is letting go. It's like if you have the opportunity to you know like. You know, hey, you know, the remaining members of the Grateful Dead are playing in Chicago July 3rd, 4th, and 5th. All you deadheads out there, you going to go? Uh, yeah, I'd love to go, but I think I'll let it go. That's renunciation. That's what I had to do. <laughs> when I heard they were playing. Okay, so let's see. Energy. Oh, man. Yep. You come where? From real violence as a child, so I dissociate it. Yeah. So I know that some of these things, like you can be generous to a fault. Yes. Okay. So some of, some of these we get, at, you know, got activated early in childhood, and we may do them unskillfully, even though there's a skillful, you know, generosity to a fault or uh, other. But see if you can look beneath the experiences of this lifetime to just see what you came in with and how that has manifested. We're not talking about karmic results 
being abused, and we're all, we all have some level of that, being abused or having great difficulty in life is, you know, the result of, you know, it's unpleasant, so it's unwholesome karma in the past. And we've, we've all got plenty of that. But even with that, how did, how, what would you say is your baseline mentality which you're then working with in this lifetime? Yeah. Boy, this is kind of revealing, isn't it? If, you know, to just say truthfulness, God, if I say I'm a seven, you know, and, and show it to somebody, they're going to say, oh, you're only truthful seven of ten times? So I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to believe. <laughs> you know, yeah. Would I describe energy? Well, do, do, would you say I have energy or not? <laughs> I have energy. So it's just, do you find it hard getting up in the morning? It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, it's just kind of like hard to kind of get it together to do anything. And just, you know, when you do something, you do it kind of sluggishly or reluctantly. Do you, you know, take a long time to do things? Do you feel like burdened because you're tired? Uh, you know, do you just feel like your approach to life is one of like, I'll do it if I have to, rather than, I'm here for the full enchilada. I want to do everything fast, a lot. Let's not be ridiculous. There shouldn't be any ones or tens. I'm going to have to erase that energy one. (laughs) I mean, because if you're a ten, that means you've got no no further development necessary. Clearly, I'm not a ten on the energy level. I better change that. (laughs) I mean, relative to human life, okay? I feel like a lot of these things have changed radically over years of practice. Of course. Are we going with now? No, I... I, Yes, I mean, we're... If, because we have practiced, a lot of these have gotten better, of course. But see if you can sense into where your heart has been throughout your life, like around generosity. You know, now we may have, maybe we never even knew anything about generosity, but, you know, before we heard teachings on the practice of generosity. But maybe we were very generous with our toys, with other kids, and loaning our bicycle, and, you know, maybe we just had that. Or maybe it's just not hard to be generous at all. Maybe it's just totally easy and spontaneous for you. Then you can see that, well, there's a, there's a real foundation of already having a lot of momentum of this quality in the heart, right, to begin with. Oh, geez, this is, this is too self-revealing, isn't it? God, it's like, who designed this exercise anyway? <laughs> I know that guy. Jeez, I know. <laughs> now, <laughs> I just had an awful thought. <clears throat> if you're here with your spouse, now let your spouse de- evaluate. <laughs> Whoops, that would be bad. <laughs> What do you think, dear? Am I really a seven? <laughs> that would be bad. Mm. <clears throat> How we doing? Yeah. Equanimity is is kind of like a balanced mind, not reactive. Are you very volatile and reactive? Or are you pretty like, oh yeah, somebody comes at you with a whole lot of, and you're just like, okay, okay, let me just kind of, let me just kind of grok in, let me just kind of feel into this and kind of. Uh, or are you very impulsive and reactive? 
Impulsive and reactive is not equanimous. So if you've got kind of a more balance and you've got a kind of a, a good ballast in your personality where you're not easily tipped over, then you'd say you have a lot of equanimity. Yeah. But if you're easily flipped out, overwhelmed, tipped over, kind of pushed into reactivity, your buttons are pushed easily, less equanimity. Whew. Embarrassing. So look at this thing. Jeez. <laughs> and, and remember, this is all in fun, but it's real. <laughs> Resolve. Yeah, resolve is sometimes called determination or um, kind of like when you put your mind to something, do you have a absolute commitment to finish it or to do it? You know, just very committed, you might say. Resolved or um, decisive. You know, just like, I'm going to do it this way. No question. Um, that's the way I'm going to do it very decisive about uh, behaviors, decisions, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You're laughing. Is it fun? I think it's great. I'm here with myself, so I'm changing. <laughs> oh, you're checking with him to see if he's, if he's being honest? Well, morality is really your own sense of conscience, like how, how much conscience do you have in speaking and acting in ways that might be kind of, you know, a uh, little bit shady in other people's eyes or in your own eyes. You might, say, you might be willing to, say, say, to just say, if nobody's going to see me, I'm going to get away with it. I'll just do it anyway. You know, and there's that, that level. Or just how, how, much, uh, how much do you care about others' opinion of you? That's a kind of morality. You know, if you, if you think, well, I can get away with this, I'll do it. But if somebody ever found out that, you know, oh my God, I, don't, I, I better not. So then you'd be, you'd be being more moral, you know, to that. If you didn't give a hoot, just said, the heck with it, I'm just going to do what I want to do and I don't care what they think. Then you might, you might be acting out in an unskillful way. Not necessarily, but you might. How are we doing? Yeah? Is there some, give me a, uh, like what? Patience and equanimity. Sure. Sure, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of overlap. If we had a circle of patience and a circle of equanimity, there'd be an overlap place where there was both. Same with, you know, generosity and loving kindness. I mean, you know, generosity and loving kindness are pretty close together when you're, I mean, they're almost synonymous. I mean, they're a different action. One is giving and of the heart and one is giving of material things but there's a lot of overlap in those that'd be an interesting thing how to design a bubble graph of the ten par- if this is my mind my energetic creative <laughs> mind a bubble graph of the ten paramis and where they overlap and then try to figure out a behavior that is uh, fits in each of the overlap places wouldn't that be fun <laughs> yeah that'd be fun okay Wisdom. Yeah. 
hard to, hard to, hard to think that little boys have wisdom, right? <laughs> it, what, how, what would wisdom and, and insight and just understand? Think of it as understanding. How, how, how easy is it for someone to, you know, a, a young person to understand? Oh, I get it. You know, mom says, you know, it, it's better not to do that. Oh, I get it. Okay, right. But if you didn't understand, you just, no, 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 I'm going to do it anyway, and, just, and, and end up getting into trouble. So you might think of it as, did you get into a lot of trouble when you were a kid? Wisdom or no wisdom? What do you think? Getting into trouble? Well, the, you know... There was a day and age when those who had any wisdom would definitely be getting into trouble, you know, or depending on where you were, maybe. What about the opposite? Being a little good little boy, then you might be uptight. You know, we'll get we'll get to that we'll get to that one later. <laughs> That's under the unwholesome. <laughs> okay. We're just doing those ten parameters. The, the ten parameters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it was too wrong. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay like now. Yeah. If it. Yeah. You know, if if you can't get a sense of like how, what the default setting might have been when you were young, just pick it up now. Just where what you can sense and how you can document now. Now, okay. So, over on the other side of the page. Write down the one that has got the highest number and the next one, the highest three, right, on the left-hand column. Identify your three most developed baseline parami. Okay. This should be fun. How many people are here? Let's see. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24, 26, 28, 30, 24, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, but I got a clear number one. Everybody have a clear number one, the highest developed parami? You've clearly got that. Huh? No? Pick one then. If you've got two that are, you know, if you've got two that are sevens or eights or whatever they are, then just pick one that you feel more. Well, now we're going to have show and tell. Out. <laughs> Okay, everybody's got their, th- their list, their three list. Okay, who 
Would those of you who have generosity as your most highly developed parami raise your hand? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, remember that. And for those who have morality as their highest developed, oh my gosh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, renunciation? None. <laughs> One? One. Okay, that, that's very indicative of our cultural conditioning, just so you know. Okay, wisdom insight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, energy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Patience. One, two, three, four, five, six. Truthfulness. One, two, three, four, five. Uh, resolve. Decisiveness. One, two, you only got one of these. Remember, you're only raising your hand once during this whole session. What's number one? What's number one up there? Okay. We're talking about resolve now. One, two, three, four, with resolve. Uh, loving kindness? One? Oh my gosh. Congratulations. <laughs> A bodhisattva. <laughs> and equanimity. One? Wow, that, that's amazing, isn't it? I've I got to make a note of that. Let's see, equanimity is one, loving kindness is one, and what was the other one? Renunciation. Huh? Renunciation was one. Oh. Wow. Well, I was going to ask that those who are, have generosity as their top one, get together and answer these questions. Why did you pick generosity as thing? And how does your behavior confirm that choice? How, wh- how have you seen this quality of mind throughout your life? How do, what have you seen You know, when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, young adult, adult? How is this, as a baseline default mentality, manifested in your life. Okay? Do you know what I mean? You want to do that? Okay. Okay, so those who have... um, And I'm going to get the the people that had... The people that were loners, that had renunciation, loving kindness, and equanimity, you're going to meet with me. I gotta find out what's so different about these people. <laughs> okay, so all those who have generosity, there was about a dozen, fifteen of you. Eight. There's eight of us with generosity. Pick a spot. Where do you want to go? Okay. Yeah. We need somebody who's decisive. Huh? Decisive. Okay. Okay, let's, let's go over in this corner. Generosity over in this corner. And the second one is uh, morality. How many moralities are there? Over in that corner. Up on, up on the stage in that corner. Okay? Renunciation. Over here with me. Wisdom insight. 
Wisdom Insight, over in that corner, over there. Energy. Okay. Did everybody have fun doing that? Or at least find it interesting or entertaining? Don't get too comfortable. Now we want to identify the three least developed, meaning the, the, on the right-hand column of the front page, the least developed is number one, would be the, the one with the lowest number over on the other side. You know? And then number two here would be the next lowest number, and number three would be the third from the bottom. So fill in your, again, fill in your chart. Get yourself identified here. Okay, everybody got yourself identified? Okay, just as a show of hands, how many have least developed wholesome quality is generosity? <laughs> I mean, this is embarrassing, I know. I mean, it's kind of like self-revealing. Okay, and uh, morality? Nobody's going to claim to be <laughs> Wait a minute, what's mine? Phew, not, not that, okay. Uh, renunciation, least developed. One, two, three, four, six. Okay. Wisdom insight, least developed. Wow, one, two. Which one are we on? Uh, wisdom insight, least developed. Uh, energy, least energy, six, seven, eight. Okay. Uh, patience. Oh, we're the winners. I mean, we're the losers. <laughs> uh, truthfulness. Uh, one, okay. Resolve. <laughs> Resolve. One, two. Okay. Uh, loving kindness. Least developed is loving kindness. You need to meet up with that woman that's got the loving kindnesses the most. <laughs> equanimity. Least is equanimity. Wow. Okay. So equanimity is a big one. And what was the other one that was big? Patience. Okay. So the questions to answer around this are why do you say that this is your least developed parami? And then what kind of problems or what kind of suffering or what kind of challenges have you endured as a result of this lack of the lack of this quality in your life? Got it? What kind of suffering, what kind of challenges, how has this been a problem? in your life. Okay? So the two big groups were patience, patience and, and, and energy. Wait a minute. What was the two big ones? Patience and what? There were three. Patience? Energy Okay. Equanimities meets over in this corner. So we're going to be up Equanimity is over here. Patience is over there. And what's the other one? Energy. Energy is going to be right here. 
Now, of, of, of the people that aren't in one of those three groups, how many are left? Okay. I thought there was a lot of ones. Okay. Generosity, we got... Which ones have we taken care of over here? That was equanimity. Okay, I have a recess, a recess reading to read to you. This is just kind of like give yourself a little relief from your own personality, <laughs> strengths and limitations. Uh, Dan Goleman, in one of his early books, it might have been Varieties of Meditative Experience or it might have been The Meditative Mind, I'm not sure which, but he has this to say about personality or consciousness. And he gives a description of what is the normal consciousness of, we might say, baseline people that aren't involved in the Dharma, that are just, uh, and, and we're all familiar with it, believe me, before you get into practicing, which when you practice uh, mindfulness, mindfulness itself is, as a factor of mind, is accompanied by all of these other qualities which result in the plasticity of the mind. You know the plasticity of the mind, how changeable it is, how malleable it is? Well, there are these factors of mind, I don't know if I have them here with me, that, are in, that, that get developed with mindfulness, lightness of mind, pliability of mind, adaptability of mind, proficiency of mind, and straightness of mind. And these are qualities that accompany every moment of mindfulness and so as mindfulness gets stronger and more momentum, the mind gets more malleable, more adaptable, more pliable. It can accommodate any and every situation. And it can mold itself to whatever conditions are unfolding. So a lifetime of Dharma practice is going to move the baseline mentality that we're born with in a certain direction. And so Dan Goleman kind of articulated a baseline of without mindful awareness and a baseline, let's say, with more awareness or a few decades of practice. So I just want to read them uh, to you so you can uh, kind of identify where you are on the spectrum. <laughs> okay, so he writes, oh, in the varieties of meditative experience, normal consciousness is often highly unhealthy with a general heaviness and unwieldiness of mental processes, where the force of habit predominates and changes and adaptations are undertaken slowly and unwillingly and to the smallest possible degree. Thought is rigid and inclined to dogma. It often takes a long time to learn from experience or advice. Affections and aversions are fixed and biased, and in general, the character proves more or less inaccessible. That's kind of like where we start, right? Does that sound familiar? I mean, sounds like Congress. <laughs> okay. Erase that. Okay. <laughs> but just so we, we have something to uh, aspire to, let me read the ideal 
personality type from a Buddhist perspective. The ideal type of personality from a Buddhist perspective is without greed for sense desires. No anxiety or resentment, no fear of any sort or dogmatisms, not attached to dogmatisms. Not averse to loss or disgrace, to pain, blame, lust or anger and the experience of, or the experience of suffering. And the need for approval, pleasure and praise is minimal. Desire for anything for oneself beyond the essential and unnecessary is also minimal. There is a prevalence of impartiality towards others and equilibrium at all times with ongoing alertness and calm delight in ordinary as well as boring experience. Strong compassion and loving kindness arise spontaneously where the perceptions are quick and accurate and one maintains composure and skill in action with an openness to others and being responsive to their needs. Hey, we're heading in the right direction, folks. We're just... We just got some room for improvement. Okay. How we doing? You kind of getting a sense of where your personality is, is, has been and is headed? Okay. Okay, we got time. So I wanted to go on to the uh, next section of the index of latent on this first page. The index of latent torments. Now the latent torments are, uh, they're called the anusia or the late, the underlying tendency to react in a certain way when conditions are present to provoke it. So we say when conditions are ripe, the tendency is to react in this way, greed, aversion, whatever it is. And there are seven uh, kinds of them seven categories, I should say, of them. And I made some distinctions within those categories. It's on the, on the reverse side of this page. So when we look at the, cross, at the mental legacies across the top, and we look at the index of latent torments, we see attachment, aversion, conceit, wrong view, skeptical doubt, delusion, and other torments just so we have a, a map of the mind. And when we talk about attachment, attachment is indulgence, grasping, clinging, craving, enjoyment, seeking, yearning for, right? And the three options there <laughs> are for sense pleasures, which are beautiful sights, sounds, smells, taste, you know, if you really like music and in sensual environments and you like a lot of food and good food and all the tastes, then that's that one. The opposite of renuncia. So if you are high in renunciation, you're probably going to be low in sense pleasure attachments. And then just because there's a lot of this going around in the Dharma community these days, there's a lot of attachment to and then identification with and enjoyment of spiritual goodies like jhanas deep absorptions, but other spiritual goodies. Uh, loving kindness, it's a spiritual goody, can arise strongly. Joy, um, bliss, ecstasy, um, other spiritual goodies like uh, effortless energy. So there's things like that that we can get attached to whether we're practicing them 
as a, simple, as a single practice, like developing joy or developing jhanas, or we can uh, see them when they arise spontaneously in our vipassana practice, and when they do, we think, ah, this is it, okay, I'm done. You know, I was, I was mindful for the whole sitting, and it was joyful, and, and the, the body had no pain, and therefore, that's it. No, it isn't. <laughs> but sometimes we can get so attached to it that we're practicing in order to reaccess that kind of experience. And we all get, you know, when you have a good sitting, as, as one of my students has said, there's nothing like a good sitting early in the day to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> because you know what happens, you have a good sitting first thing in the morning, it's like you look for it for every sitting of the rest of the day and it never happens again. That's called attachment, right? Because we get attached to this kind of experience and so we kind of get, yeah, 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 I want that, looking for it. And then a, t- a life in any realm, the attachment to life in any realm is like this. Sometimes we think, oh, um, I'll keep it in the human realm first. We think, oh, I don't have quite enough money. I need another 10% more, like most of us think. If I had just 10% more, then I'd have enough. That's like seeking happiness, attached to happiness in another realm, where you got more money, or more power, or more living in a better neighborhood, or better school, better education, uh, having, more pol- having your political party win you know hey like if you know if Hillary gets elected I don't know are there any Republicans here (laughs) no it's just like whatever whoever you think your political party is if they get elected then it'll be better right come on nobody believes that well yes people do I mean that's called attachment to life in another realm okay but there are also, you know, in the Buddhist cosmology, there are other realms. There's the animal realm, the hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, which none of us think are happy places. But the heaven realm? Hey, what's wrong with the heaven realms, you know? You don't even have to eat food. You just live on joy. Wow. Awaken your joy, go to the heaven realms. Kind of imbibe endlessly. Like there's no limit. What's wrong with that? Well... Those in the heaven realms, they suffer with pride, jealousy. You know, they see other heavenly beings that have brighter auras and bigger celestial mansions, and they get jealous. <laughs> it's like, you know, the Warren Buffetts and the Bill Gates are looking at the, you know, who's the Apple guys? Oh, Steve Jobs and his, his wife and saying, hey, they got more than I do. I want they, you know, they got a bigger yacht, and they got a bigger house, and they got a bigger company, and their valuation of their company is bigger than mine. It's like, hey, I want to go to their realm. Okay, so do you have a tendency to attachment in that way? Do you find yourself yearning for a different quality of life in another realm, or more sense pleasures, or, you know, for people that get to be my age, wishing you were younger? There's a lot of ways it it appears, attachment to sense pleasure. Aversion. So, do you have a tendency to these kinds of aversion? They kind of go from grossest to subtlest. Hatred and rage are very acting out, striking out forms of aversion. Anger is, can be both internal and acting out aversion. Fear and anxiety is mostly internal kind of aversion. Uh, depression and despair is really beating yourself up. 
internally and frustration, disappointment, subtle, very subtle forms of, or subtler forms of aversion, not accepting the impediments that, you know, things didn't happen, so you feel frustrated or you feel disappointed. And then the subtler forms is impatience and irritation, just feeling a simmering kind of, can't put up with it, don't want to, just kind of irritated. So what we're looking at here is the tendency to react in these ways when conditions are ripe. You know, some of us might say, oh, I, never, I, I don't really get hatred and rage. It's like, that, that seems pretty, pretty minimal in my life. But impatience and irritation? It's been there, done that. Okay? So that's what we're looking at. How, what is the... Mm, what is the likelihood that you would respond in one of these ways if conditions were provocative or, or ripe for that? Conceit is the evaluating, in this case, well, for, the, for this exercise, <clears throat> evaluating yourself as greater than others along any parameter or evaluating yourself as less than others, less wise, less you know, uh, intelligent, less wealthy, less opportunities, less anything? Or are you one of these people that just insists we're all equal no matter what? But that's also a comparing mind. You know, you may think you're better than me, but you're not. You're <laughs> like that. Wrong view. I had to pick a few. <laughs> There's lots. But I just picked these ones because... Sometimes we can recognize that we have some, uh, I won't say just doubt, but we don't really understand karma, for example, cause and effect. I'll give you an example. The law of karma says, or states, that when you experience unpleasant conditions, you feel, you know, something's unpleasant mentally or unpleasant physically, it is the result of prior karmic actions. Your prior unwholesome karmic actions. The tendency that many of us have is when I'm feeling something unpleasant, I look for somebody to blame. I never think of myself. My own former unwholesome actions. Right? So that's wrong view. If I'm looking for someone to blame for my unpleasant experiences, wrong view of karma. Now, there might be a proximate cause. Somebody said something, somebody did something, and you had this unpleasant feeling. But if you got caught in it, we're talking about getting caught, getting hooked in that blame game, then you'd say, not, not fully understanding karma. That's wrong view, having a tendency towards wrong view. Uh, wrong view about spiritual goodies, joy, bliss, uh, equanimity, uh, union with one, the, whatever else that you might think is the goal. Whatever you think the goal of practice is, joy, bliss, union with God, uh, becoming one with all things. Uh, sometimes people think, oh, if I could just disappear some kind of annihilation, uh, uh, annihilate, annihilating the personality, or if I could just be calm, or if I could, uh, you know, what, 
we have all kinds of ideas about this is the goal or this is the benefit of spiritual practice. Yeah, these are benefits, but if, they're, if they have a higher profile of uh, accomplishment in your life or sense of that, then that would be a wrong view because the goal in Buddha Dharma practice is, of course, the end of suffering, which is only Nibbana. So if, it, if you're looking for anything other than Nibbana, you've got some of that. Oh my gosh, we're really in trouble. <laughs> okay, and then an, an enduring sense of self. This is a wrong view, and we know in, in Buddhist teachings and practices, they're always pointing to the conditional nature and the non-self characteristic of all phenomena. But still, we pretty regularly get caught in an enduring sense of self. We get caught in believing, this is the way I am. This is the way I've always been. This is the way I'm going to be forever. Some of what we're doing today in looking at these um, mental legacies, we may identify as mine, as me, as who I am, like solidifying around these mental legacies as really being, this is who I am. I am really the generous but deluded type. You know, and it's just, these are impersonal forces. They're not, they're not personal to us. We're just identified with them or they've become such a habit that it's as if we're identified with them and so we claim them as my true, inner, deep, enduring sense of self. Wrong view. Um, wrong view about Nibbana or liberation. It's hard to say whether you have a right view or wrong view of Nibbana of liberation until you've experienced or until you've realized Nibbana, so we'll leave that one out. I won't explain that one. <coughs> skeptical, skeptical doubt. Doubt in, the, doubt in yourself, doubt in your own capacity, your own capabilities, your own um, uh, ability to either practice or practice effectively or anything else in life, any other... Uh, career choice, uh, occupation, project that you're engaged in, you might just have, you might tend to have a very doubting personality. Is it just really hard for you to make a commitment in life? If it is, why? Well, maybe there's just a lot of doubt. Or doubt in karma. This is doubt about, when we have doubt about karma, doubt about the law of karma, we're not afraid to act in an unwholesome way because we don't understand that the result is going to be unpleasant. So we just say, I don't, I don't know if karma's true, I'm going to do it anyway. That's doubt. Or we may not see the benefit of practicing uh, generosity, for example. It's just like giving yourself, a, giving yourself away and just kind of putting yourself in the hole. It's like without seeing, without knowing that the benefit of generosity is going to be living with a sense of abundance even if you have less, if we don't understand that, then we have doubt about the law of karma in the practice of generosity in that example. And then doubt about the Dharma. The Dharma, is the, in this case, is the teachings of the Buddha. Do we hear of teachings of the Buddha that we don't believe in? Do we, I mean, some of it we can't confirm, that's true. We can't confirm everything the Buddha said. But do you doubt that what the Buddha said is true? depends on how much you've studied it, I suppose. 
delusion, two kinds of delusion are not knowing, which is, you know, like when your mind wanders off and you're lost in thought and you don't know. You don't know what's happening. You, 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 you don't know at the time. You're completely lost. Uh, that is corrected by mindfulness. If you're mindful, you may, you, you'll know what's going on. But even though you know what's going on, you may suffer the second kind of delusion, which is understanding it wrongly. You see what's happening, but you understand it wrongly. I'll give you an example of that. When uh, understanding it wrongly, when aversion arises in the mind, it causes you to see only the unpleasant characteristics of what you're looking at. So no matter what you're looking at, if aversion is in the mind, what you'll see is the unpleasant characteristics of it. On the other hand, if desire and attachment arises in your mind, and you look at that same object, that same person, that same car, that same house, all you'll see is the pleasant aspect of it. So when we're under the influence of attachment or aversion, craving or aversion, attachment or aversion, then we're seeing the object, we're seeing the car, we're seeing the house, we're seeing our self-image in the mirror, but because it's under the influence of desire or aversion, we're understanding it wrongly. So we could say, well, there's some mindfulness, but no wisdom. So there's two kinds of delusion we're talking about. No mindfulness, you don't know what's going on, or mindfulness with no wisdom, you don't understand what's going on. Okay? And then... The other torments that I just threw in there for something to entertain ourselves with is envy, avarice, and worry. Shamelessness and remorselessness are the morality factors of mind. Do you have a conscience? Do you have a sense of modesty? Do you, do you fear doing things wrong because of what people will think of you or what you'll think of yourself? And then sloth and torpor. Our familiar friends, for, from years of sitting practice, sloth and torpor. How likely are you to indulge in sloth and torpor when the opportunity arises or are you willing to engage it and work with it, kind of challenge it uh, and do what you can to, that's what we're talking about. How susceptible are you to sloth and torpor and acting it out whenever the conditions arise that it might be present. You know, sloth and torpor arises, do you give in to it or do you kind of like, wait a minute, no, I'm going to not necessarily resist or struggle with it, but I'm not going to give in to it. That's what we're looking at. So, again, these are, uh, I would say, in this teaching of mental legacies, the understanding is that we come into the world with some index of susceptibility to these unwholesome reactive states of mind. So the unwholesome reactive states of mind are, you know, attachment to sense pleasure, attachment to spiritual goodies, attachment to life in any realm, the different kinds of aversion. So these are the unskillful, unwholesome uh, reactive states of mind. How susceptible do you feel you've been to them throughout your life? Let me see what the homework is, what the thing is here. Oh, this is a different exercise. Okay, so what I would like you to do with your pencil, pencil,
pencil pen, is when you look at attachment and you turn it over to the side, which of those three are you most susceptible to? Are you most susceptible to attachment to sense pleasures? Or are you most susceptible to spiritual goodies of any, any sort? Or are you most susceptible to imagining a better life elsewhere? <laughs> Happiness in another realm. Okay? Or when you look at aversion, which of the forms of aversion are you most susceptible to? Hatred, rage, anger, fear, anxiety, depression, despair. Okay? So I'm going to give you a few minutes to go through the list of these seven categories of latent torments and identify which of them in each category you are most likely or most susceptible to or that you feel has been most you've been most susceptible to in your life not just right now but how have you seen it manifest in your life clue about this conceit greater than less than the greater thans are those who more often get caught in entitlement mentality and the less thans are those who are more often likely to get caught in victimized victim mentality just just to give you a, a rough yeah doubt in self when you when you have to make a decision in life or when you come to practice or do, do you feel very confident in your own capacity to 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 do it to make a clear decision and stick with it or do you find it like well I don't know I feel kind of like maybe I'd like to but I don't know and you know do, are you very hesitant or are you very confident because the opposite of doubt is confidence hmm? doubt and confidence think of it that way yeah yeah Well, in, in this case, what we're, what we're saying is if you have no shame to act out in an unskillful way, that's shamelessness okay. or remorselessness. You act out in a way that harms yourself or harms others. You don't have any remorse. You just say, they deserved it. There. Okay. So that's why that's an unskillful uh, torment of tormented. Yeah. E equality mana is is really an inability to see legitimate differences between people. So you know there are people who have greater wisdom. There are people that have a greater uh, sensitive, more loving kindness. There are people that have a greater sensitivity to what is maybe morally uh, sustainable and justifiable. And if you just insist on saying, no, no, we're all equal, then you don't have any more wisdom than I do, or they don't have any more wisdom than I do, then that would be insisting on equality mana, equality conceit, equality conceit.
their uh, personality on the page. <laughs> you, want to, you want a new page? A new personality? Hey, that's, that's right. I mean, hopefully this will, this will kind of stimulate, you know, you to say, hey, you know, uh, time is running out. I better, you know, if I'm going to be reborn with the mentality that I leave this lifetime with, I better get with the program. Right? That's what it does. It kind of arouses a sense of urgency when you see, geez, you know, I still got some pretty strong, unskillful, unwholesome tendencies or liability to these tormented states of mind. What, what can you do about it? Well, in fact, that's the next part of the assignment. Because you'll see that underneath each one of these categories of torments, there is a whole list of different practices you can undertake to address that particular condition. So, those who are attached to spirit, to sense pleasures, practicing greater morality or restraint, practicing greater tranquility so that we're not so easily aroused and inflamed with lust, but just have more tranquility, and practicing insight so that you understand that the pleasures that you get from sense pleasures, or the enjoyment you get from sense pleasures, you know, it's not that enduring, it's not that substantial, it's pretty ephemeral, and, you know, with insight, it would limit your liability or susceptibility to sense pleasures. And so you can look down through that list of your, you know, your selection of each one of these seven categories, look down the list, and pick the one practice that you really feel would be beneficial for you to address that particular condition. Okay? So we've got, we've got, we've got these seven choices, seven areas of our liability to torment. And on the back side, we have all these lists of practices. Yes? Oh, I must have made a mistake. <laughs> No, I think because sometimes sensual pleasures like this, I think that there is, what I was thinking of at that time, was thinking sometimes people are just inflamed with lust and they're just, you know, you know sex addicts or, I mean, to take the far extreme, sex addicts, that's got nothing to do with loving kindness. And yet if you had loving kindness for, well, the targets or the objects of your uh, attachment and lust, you might, that might kind of cool the flames a little bit. That's what I was thinking. But I'm willing to accept a challenge to any of these. I just put these together, kind of. I did a little research, got some advice and suggestions, but I was just mostly used my own mind and said, yeah, if I had that, this would be useful, this would be useful, that would be useful, and other things. But... If you have a question about any of them, please uh, let me know. Yeah. What is samsara? Oh, gee. Anybody want to give a quick definition of samsara? It's, um, samsara is the, the cycle of life where you just go round and round, first as an animal, and then as a human, and then as another animal, and then into the hell realm, into the heaven realms, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. You know? The endless cycling of birth and death. That's the way to look at it. 
grasping at pleasures in one realm or another. What you think will bring you satisfaction in one realm or another. Other, okay, I've got to go ahead and do this. Other questions? If you, if you run up against one of these practices that you don't understand or need some explanation on, let me know. Or if it doesn't seem to fit your particular need, <laughs> then let, let me know that too. Okay, so Mahasi Zayada is uh, kind of like the grandfa- one of the grandfathers of the Vipassana tradition in America. And so that's why I included him uh, in this. And he said, in his ad- he has an admonition. He has an admonition that says, I got it here somewhere. Right. Encouraging counsel. This is Mahasi Zayada's admonition. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, wealth, and humanity. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love solitude, be willing to learn, and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Good dhammas are basically uh, tranquility, insight, and liberation. Peace of mind. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between mind and body. Their impermanence, unreliability, and insubstantiality, and such wisdom leads to lasting peace. This meditation center should be a quiet place where beings strengthen their faith practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. That's Mahasi Sayadaw's. That's the context of his six practices that lead to good dhammas. Are you perplexed? No? Okay. I've got to finish my, finish my assignment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mindfulness is good for all of them, of course. Mindfulness is good for And insight is good for all of them. You can see, going across there, uh, insight and mindfulness, they're good for every one, every practice, every tendency. Know, know that you're going to do in mindfulness and insight for all of them, but what's the other practice that's going to be useful? <laughs> Yeah. What are the three trainings? The 
three trainings are sila, samadhi, and panya, meaning morality is the precepts. Tranquility or samadhi is uh, mindfulness practice that calms the mind down. And insight is vipassana practice, which leads to understanding. The three trainings are the eightfold path. You know, the eightfold noble path are the three factors of the right of morality, the three of um, meditation and two of wisdom. Yeah. I could have put the eightfold path factors, but they divided into the three cat, three train. Yeah. So later, I just wanted to look these up. This column has enough that I could just put it into Google and it If you wanted to look up what? Like later after this. Yeah. I don't know most of those. You don't know most of these trainings? Yeah. So you sure. Look them up from that column. Is that like yeah. Yep, um, most places, I mean, if you, if you just went into, onto uh, the web and just typed in the three Buddhist refuges, they'd come up the whole thing, and, or the four, four divine abidings, they'd be, yeah. Mahasi's six factors contributing to good dharmas, probably not, but they're pretty self-explanatory, you know. Uh, the ten paramis, for sure, five controlling faculties, I and many other teachers have given talks on them, either as individual factors or as the five together. Uh, the wholesome neuroplasticity factors of the mind are only mentioned in the Abhidhamma and there's not much written about them. But I included them here just so that we can see that these are the factors that we're working with to really uh, move the personality from a stiff, rigid, dogmatic, opinionated personality towards more adaptability and responsivity rather than reactivity and these are the factors of mind that get activated with every moment of mindfulness and plasticity of mind is being talked about a lot now in the neuroscience field not what, I got. what? Not what I know about. oh yeah. that's your field no, oh. oh okay <laughs> I mean I don't I don't know how to practice buoyancy lightness pliancy, adaptability, and proficiency other than through mindfulness. Yeah. You know, you could try yoga, but that's, that's buoyant, pliant, adaptable, proficient body, not mind. So. Straightness of mind is uh, it's a quality of mind that comes with mindfulness, which, which results in the inability to deceive yourself. But it's like this, you know, some people are very decisive. You know, they look at something, they just get it, right, got it. Or they can explain something just like step, 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 explain. But some people, when you ask them, uh, you know, what'd you do or how'd you do or why'd you do something, it's like, God, they weave this very complicated, you know, con- you know all kinds of contingencies. And, you know, it's like, geez, you know, they come up with some explanation that doesn't explain anything. Not a very straight mind. Okay. So if, you're, if your mind is putting a lot of spin on or reactive to others' spin, it's not straight. If it's able to just go, choom, got it, choom, got it. Straight mind, straight mind. How are we doing? Got everything done? I haven't got mine done yet.
do we generalize this one? How do we move into a commitment to practice? <laughs> or, hmm, I'm open to suggestions. <clears throat> So a uh, question here, uh, equanimity is listed as a possible practice for a couple of my uh, features. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering in your own practice, yep. what have you actively done to cultivate uh, equanimity? Do you use a, a specific thing or yeah. Uh, yeah. can you tell us about that? There's a, there's a, equanimity is a Brahma Vihara mm -hmm. practice, you know, the metta compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Equanimity is, equini there's a formal equanimity practice using phrases for arousing the understanding of karma as the foundation for equanimity. Because a lot of our reactivity to uh, others' pain, or our own pain, or suffering, confusion, dif difficulties in life, is because we don't understand the law of karma. Um, when we see others suffering, we, we, we can use a phrase like, um, you know, your happiness or sorrow depends on your karma, not my wishes for you. Even though I'm wishing for you to be happy, I can't make it happen, and they're still continuing to suffer. So I want to be careful not to, not to disrupt my own equanimity of mind by their suffering. I'm not thinking that I'm not effective. Well, my, my wishes for you are important, but your happiness or sorrow is dependent on your karma. So it's really a reflection and a reminder of the law of karma a lot of equanimity practices. And there's, there's a whole series of phrases uh, and reflections that you can use to, to do that. And I kind of wanted to find out what you, what you use personally or what you have found the most useful. Do you use the, the template that you just described? Or yeah, the yeah. Okay. The, I use the one, let's see. I can't remember exactly what the phrases was. I've taught it so many ways differently yeah. since then, but when I was in Burma as a monk, I was there in 1988, and they had a political uprising, you know, way back when yeah. Ne Win, the old dictator, stepped down, and Aung San Suu Kyi was there and first became well-known. And the military pulled, pulled a coup and offed a lot of people, and the country went into military rule for 30 years. And it was a very tense time. I couldn't practice Vipassana at that time because it was so... I didn't want to stay present with though that kind of suffering. Yeah. So that's when I started practicing a lot of equanimity, loving kindness and equanimity for everyone in Burma who was suffering so much. As much as I didn't want them to suffer, as much as I didn't want the generals to be doing what they were doing, I wanted everybody to be happy. You know, That was my wish, but I had to be careful not to let my own mind get disturbed by what was actually going on and to just become angry and rageful. That's the benefit of practicing. Actually, equanimity is, is the or equanimous mind, a balanced mind, a non-reactive mind, but in, not a disengaged mind, but an engaged but non-reactive mind, is the, uh, it, it is the epitome of mundane accomplishments through Dharma practice. Meaning, you know, other than realizing Nibbana, this is, this is what we get. 
you know, the best we get from Dharma practice is that kind of understanding and non-reactive mind. Yeah. Is, I guess it's meditating on death, but I don't get that. Meditating on death? I think that's what that means. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple. One of the, the four mind-turning reflections on death, mm-hmm. that's one. And the four protective reflections is reflecting on death. And I think that's just the two of them. What, that, what the reason, the, the value of reflecting on one's death is both to arouse a sense of urgency, like, you know, time is running out, life is, life is going by. What is it that you need to do in your life? And then the, the actual phrases or the actual thoughts of reflecting on death are to remind yourself that all beings, uh, all beings die. Uh, and uh, I too will die. And the way and time of death is unknown. There's no, there's no predicting when it'll happen. Oh, and then the last, the last reflection is, and I too will die. It's not to arouse a sense of morbidity or fear. And if, it, if that's what it does, if it rises morbidi- arouses morbidity and fear and anxiety, then either you're doing it wrong or it's not in a skillful practice for you. So it's meant to arouse this sense of, you know, cut through all the, all the uh, smoke screen about what life's all about and just get to the point that, you know, no matter what you do, you know, it's all going to come to an end. And how much of your life are you going to devote to things that have no purpose or are just distractions or are just dissipation of your energy and are really not useful, not skillful? So it's meant to arouse a sense of urgency and to uh, temper one's indulgence in the sensual uh, distraction, dispersion. Yeah. Other questions about practices? Anybody want to share their fears of the practice they're going to have to do now? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have a question about a, a torment that isn't on here. Um, yeah. Go others. You have shamelessness, but what about shame as a torment? I think a lot of people experience that. I certainly have some of it. You mean, there, you know, I, I, I hesitated to use the word shame in this case, but there really isn't a better word. But when shameless and shame, shameless, because Western psychology has a different understanding of shame than I'm using here. So are you talking about Western psychological shame? You know, the shame that we experience when we get, um, you know, non-approval and resistance or we get our wings clipped, you know, as something's wrong with you. Not just that you're doing something bad like guilty, but there's something wrong with you. That, that kind of shame is not your moral indicator. That's somebody else's bad behavior. Okay? So you may feel the shame, but that's not your... I mean, we're all, we're all subject to that. But it's not your intention. 
what I'm talking about here, this shamelessness is when you have no shame to do something that harms others. You say, you know, I'm, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care if they feel pain. That's, that's not my concern. They deserve it. Mm. Yeah, no, I meant to try to add a, a 41 on. Yeah, that, that wouldn't you're, be... No, okay. that would be somebody else's shame. I mean, yeah, I mean, we could put all of these things as somebody else's anger, somebody else's rage, somebody else's shame, shame shaming, something like that. So is this that might fall under a continuing sense of self or one of those things that you're, you know, I mean, the experience of shame is an enduring sense of self. Yeah. It seems like it fits in here somewhere. So, oh, the enduring sense of self? Where's the enduring sense of self? That's somewhere in there. Wrong view. Wrong view. It could be. Mm-hmm. When I read Enduring Sense of Self, what I, my immediate reaction was, I'm hopeless. As in, like, I'm a hopeless case, which is pretty egotistical, I guess. But when you, yeah, think of, think of that. When, when someone says, I'm a hopeless case, I'm, 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 it's, you, you know, I'm beyond, that is really solidifying around a sense of self as enduring, isn't it? It is. I mean, and, and we do that. I mean, we do that. But that is really a strong identification with an enduring sense of self. And that's wrong view. Mm. Does anyone want to share any understanding they have of themselves from that this exercise around the latent defilements the tendency towards latent defilements I mean after all let's think of it these are the things these are the tendencies the baseline default setting of our mind that causes us to suffer that causes the different kinds of suffering that we experience in life you would think that we would say, I want to know exactly what's causing me suffering, and I want to get on the program to clean it up. Right? But if we're lackadaisical about it, if we're ho-hum about it, if we're a little bit casual about it, what does that say about our trust or faith in the Dharma? It's like, yeah, maybe, I don't know, doubt. Which is a form of suffering. Huh. It's really circular here. Once you start reflecting on what these actually mean and, and what you can actually do about them or how you can practice to address them, it starts to be a pretty pervasive web of belief that we have about ourselves. Now we have to remember that this Buddhist personality type, the whole idea of a Buddhist personality type, is kind of like a typology that we get identified with. And that's wrong view. You know, because it's not that fixed. It's not that solid. But on the other hand, we want to be, don't want to be so naive or so dismissive of seeing the tendencies in the mind. Yeah, I do have this tendency. I really, I, I, I'm, I'm more impatient than patient. Okay, let's not, let's not miss that. Let's not avoid that. Let's not live in denial of that, but let's do something about that. But we want to be careful not to solidify, you know, a momentary perception of impermanence, 
you know, when you feel momentarily impermanence, there's a tendency to eternalize it and say, I'm always impermanent. And then to generalize it from, I'm always impermanent to, I'm an, imper- I'm an, imper- I'm an impermanent per. I mean, I'm definitely an impermanent person. <laughs> I mean, and I'm an impatient person. And then we've got a fixed identity. From a momentary perception of any of these, greed, aversion, wrong views, mana, conceit, a momentary perception, it's a, easy, it's a slippery slope, very quick, to eternalize it and then to identify with it. And then we've got a solid, it's much more challenging to be willing to face an enduring sense of self, which is an aggressive, angry, you know, impatient, you know, deluded person, than just a momentary perception of any one of them. Get it? So it's like if we don't practice mindfulness and wisdom, which are antidotes to all of these, we're going to solidify around a sense of self that is, well, if you're really deluded, you'll get identified with these wholesome qualities, and if you're really deluded, you get identified with these uh, unwholesome tendencies, the, the latent defilements. Any one of them. I mean, I was cautioned about even doing a Buddhist personality type uh, kind of workshop or something like this because people will, people will go through the exercise, they'll get identified, they'll identify these things like we're doing and then get identified with them, which is just the opposite of what you want, <laughs> you want to do. But on the other hand, if you don't know about this and you don't recognize your own, if you don't have the kind of internal integrity or straightness of mind to recognize, you know what, I got a little weakness in these areas. I got some strengths here, but I got some weakness here. Then we won't work on them. We, we may overlook the opportunity that Dharma practices offer to address them in an effective way. So we want to be careful not to solidify another sense of self as being this kind of personality. If that's what's happening, stop, go, take a break, <laughs> stand up, take a pee, get a coffee, something. But on the other hand, to see that, oh, there is room for improvement, and these are the areas that need improvement, and these are the ways of, of improving, oh, then that's, that's a skillful use of this uh, exercise that we're doing today. Okay, so we're going to take a couple minute break. I've got to stand up and go take a pee. We have to wrap up at 4.30, right? So we've got five, ten minute break, and then we're going to come back and we're going to finish this baseline mentality. I'll talk about it a little bit, and you can really solidify your sense of self. <laughs> <laughs> so we have one um, last uh, latent mentality that I want to work with today, and that is the baseline mentality. Uh, and there's only six options here. But we have a, we have a uh, you may, we might say that we have a, an index on all six qualities. All six qualities. And I just want to give you some, uh, an overview of these uh, different qualities so that you can then evaluate it as to how much or where you are on a five-point scale on these um, different uh, six kinds. Of course... The first three, greedy, aversive, and deluded, are the three root unwholesome qualities, and the faithful, discerning wisdom, and speculative are three wholesome qualities. But I want to mention about them 
It says the greed, faith personality type is characterized by craving. Greed is characterized by craving. And the faith type is characterized by optimism. But actually, faith types look for the wholesome. Greed types look for the pleasant. So they're seeking pleasantness, and the faith type is seeking wholesomeness. That's why the faith type has a lot of uh, faith in Dharma practices. The aversive and discerning type, uh, the aversive type is characterized by criticism, picking, picking, and the discerning type is, is characterized by clarity, so that when the through Dharma practice, the aversive type is made wholesome or transformed in a wholesome direction, it has a very refined discerning capacity. It can distinguish the subtlest difference between what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, what's proper, what's not, what's more skillful or less skillful, because the, the mind is very discerning. So it's the capacity to discern very fine distinctions used aversively is to find all kinds of things to complain about and used with wisdom can refine subtle distinctions between, oh, this is good, but this is a little better. This is, this is discerning wisdom in this way. The um, deluded and speculative type are characterized by doubt. Of course, the deluded type is characterized by doubt and um, doubt and restlessness, really, which is just kind of a dispersion. And the speculative type is characterized by equanimity. Now, I was just talking to a couple over here, and I'd always heard that the speculative type was really a thinking type. Someone who thinks, not just kind of randomly, restlessly, uh, kind of in a kind of scheming strategy way, but just that they have a very rich and prolific thought process around anything that they're engaged in. So it can be a wholesome, uh, it can be unwholesome if, it's, if it ends up being uh, diluted and wholesome evidently would lead to equanimity because you see all sides of things. You see, yes, this and this or both and rather than either or. The aversive type is no and either or, and the, the discerning type would be, or the speculative type would be more equanimity with all perspectives. So it's said that the spiritual task of the greedy type is to transform the desire for sense objects into a desire to know the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And the greedy types need to balance their optimism with an awareness of dukkha, or suffering. The practices that can help with the greedy type are contemplation of old age, sickness, and death, and impermanence, meditation on the unbeautiful aspect of the body, generosity, renunciation, etc. The other list, the rest of the list. That's for the greedy, the greedy type, and the, the job of, the, of Dharma practice for the greedy type is to turn their greed for pleasure into faith in the three jewels, faith in the practices, and turn their mind away from 
sensuous indulgence towards more Dharma practice by reflecting on old age, sickness, death, and the unpleasant aspects of the body. Okay? So, as I talk about this, you can get a sense of, oh yeah, as a greedy type, just seeking sensual pleasures, and or any of these other greeds, areas of greed, sensual pleasures, spiritual goodies, life in any other realm, Got, a, got an index for that, a number between one and five, one being got a lot, got not much of that, greedy, to number five, got a lot of it. And then the, the faithful type is ones who have a lot of faith in uh, seeking the good or the wholesome by taking the refuge, taking refuges in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, um, practicing the precepts, uh, looking for the wholesome qualities in life. So you might you might just get a quick snapshot and evaluate your index on the greedy. And it's not like the greedy can be one to five and the faithful can be one to five. It's not like, you know, if the greedy is one, the faithful has to be four or five. It's not that way. It's not a spectrum so much as we can have both. Can they both be five? Let's see. It would be a very greedy, like really wanting a lot of everything, and very faithful. Yeah, why not? No, they're not either or. It's like when, when the mind is influenced, let's think of it this way, when the mind is influenced by unwholesome tendencies, it's going to be greedy. When it's flu- influenced by wholesome, it's going to be faithful. But you might not have much greed, and you might not have much faith either. You know, could be that way. The spiritual task of the aversive type is to transform the critical mind through wisdom and insight. So we transform the criticism that picks and you know kind of finds things to complain about or be averse to, and transforms it into a very discerning. Uh, mind that can really make subtle distinctions between right and wrong, better and best, the best practice for this particular condition, stuff like that. And aversive types need to learn to relax, question their beliefs about being right, meaning take a look at their self-righteousness, notice joy in addition to suffering, and to practice loving-kindness, compassion, mindfulness of mind, humor, faith, patience, open awareness, and should practice in a pleasant environment. That's why we have this place on Maui. <laughs> For those of you who have a person, a aversive personality type, come to Maui. Nice place to practice. <laughs> so again, give yourself, a, uh, give yourself an index, uh, one to five on each of these. Aversive and or and the discerning wisdom. Let's see. Greedy. Uh, faithful. Aversive. Oh. I want to be a discerning wisdom type, but it's hard to say I'm also a very aversive type. <laughs> but I am. Or I do. I have a pretty good aversion. Deluded, the spiritual task of the deluded type is to transform spaciousness 
spaciousness into a state of rooted equanimity. That's a little bit. Sometimes deluded types are kind of like ditzy. <laughs> Excuse me. Kind of like spacey. Spacey, not spacious. So the deluded types need to learn how to reel in their minds. And the useful practices include noting or labeling, that's using developing perception by being able to name your experience, uh, mindfulness of doubt, body awareness, uh, mindfulness of the earth element, hardness, softness, things that are very grounding, and putting oneself in a safe and pleasant environment so that we feel very integrated and whole rather than in a noisy, distracted environment where you feel very dispersed and kind of unintegrated. So the deluded type needs to get a handle on their spacey uh, ungroundedness and get more equanimity and ground, ground more equi equanimous and grounded. Hmm. So, deluded. Am I deluded? If you don't know whether you're deluded, check yes. <laughs> hmm. And as I said, the speculative type is characterized by equanimity, non-reactivity, more balance of mind. Speculative type. So, somehow I thought it would be useful to add up each column. Nine of the unwholesome. 12 of the wholesome. Geez, that's not a very good... <laughs> yes. Yeah. For it, it, it's not just not just avoiding things, but 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 have it's not it's not avoiding aversive. It's having a, a having a distancing relationship to things, so that when you are averse to something, sometimes you strike out at it. You know, you get angry and rageful and hit. You know, mentally or physically hit. Or sometimes you just internalize it and you, you kind of uh, withdraw from the experience so that you're, you're avert, averting. Or trying not to have it. Yeah, averting from it. Yeah. What's that? I relate to that. Aversion? Adverting. Withdrawing. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, and fear, fear is the, you know, sometimes people question why fear is a, is, a, is a form of aversion. Because what you see out there, you want to get away from. You want to withdraw from. You want to be free from that source of that fear. Yeah. So just as a uh, kind of a... How to do this? How to do this? Let me just ask, 
did you have, if you add up the numbers in the left-hand column and then you add up the numbers in the right-hand column, which is greater, the left-hand column total or the right-hand column total? Yours is the same? Mostly the same? How, about, how many have higher number on the right-hand column as a total than on the left? Okay. How many have a higher number on the left-hand column than the right? Wow. It's about even. And how many have the same? Wow. I guess we're a universally representative of the way things are. <laughs> 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 a zero mean bias is that what that you must be a scientist or, an, or a, st a, sta a statistician <laughs> zero mean bias <laughs> so now I want to just ask uh, you know as we, we we have a little few minutes to wrap up when you see having gone through these exercises this afternoon and you get a sense of what the uh, what I mean by the default mental legacies or the default uh, setting of the mind upon which all our conditioning builds and see how it is kind of referring to a personality type even though we have a you know we have a full range of personality characteristics how do you feel about your personality type. So it's not a simple, I'm a deluded type, I'm a greedy type, because we have these wholesome qualities also. Oh, I'm energetic, generous, and resolved. I have more of that. I have some weaknesses in patience and, and loving kindness. And then we have these other tendencies to react in unskillful or unpleasant ways. And then we have this baseline mentality. What is the, what is the um, overall, I want to say, what is the overall ambient feeling you have of your personality type? Optimistic, hopeful, creative? I mean, words that may not be any in, in, mentioned today. But what is the overall feel if you had to if you had to characterize take look at this and say okay I got all these factors in play here what one word would most describe or kind of express or maybe a two word phrase express your personality type so just for example, if someone had a lot of creativity, I mean had a lot of energy and had a lot of uh, loving kindness and whatever and they, their index of latent torments was such and such and they were faithful and discerning and speculative, they might say, oh I, I can see, I'm a very, I have a tendency towards creativity and trust. We didn't mention creativity or trust anywhere here today. But that might be the prevailing ambient flavor of the character or their personality uh, default or the, the kind of the baseline rather than default but the baseline of their personality so can you think of or what would you how would you characterize yours Let's see. if people are going to volunteer for 
Okay. Or if not one word, one or two, two or three words, just a kind of a phrase. Curious. Curious. Okay, I want to just write this down. Woody Allen. <laughs> Woody Allen. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, energetic and neurotic, but also um, fearful and anxious. <laughs> so I thought Woody Allen. Uh, easygoing, caring. Easygoing, caring. Having understanding, but tentative. Tentative understanding. Well, the understanding is there, but the, how to live it is tentative. Okay. Under wise, wise tentativeness. Is that right? Well, the tentativeness kind of undermines the wisdom, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> okay, understanding and tentative. Yeah. Anybody else want to hazard a uh, generalization? Well balanced in my greed, aversion, and delusion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say hard to categorize. You say what? Hard to categorize. Hard to characterize. Had to had to categorize. More confused. More confused. I thought I was delusional, and I just I still I yes with more information I feel more confused, but maybe I still am delusional. Then. <laughs> You had your delusion confirmed. I'm more confused. <laughs> we're, we're shy over here. Oh, shy. That's a good... <laughs> yeah? Both fearful and childlike optimism. Oh, fearful but optimistic. And childlike optimism. A and optimistic. Fearful and childlike optimism. <laughs> Hopeful. Hopeful. It, it's hard to be limited by few words. Um, by what? By few words. <laughs> um, I think... Fearful, but hopeful, and tentatively on the path. Oh. I don't... I, aspirational. Oh, okay. Aspirational? Fearful, hopeful, and aspirational. Okay. Others? Come on, I've got to have something for the next time I do this. Possible suggestions. <clears throat> Um, reliable and kind. Reliable and kind. Mm. Others? Greed and kind. <coughs> Greed, kind. Uh, 
forceful and optimistic. Forceful. Forceful and optimistic. Anything else? I think I would characterize myself as energetically imbalanced. <laughs> <laughs> Closing words? Any last? How about some feedback? How, how, we've got 10 minutes before we've got to be out of here or head out. Somebody else will be coming in five, I think, or so. Um, just for my own uh, understanding, feedback, uh, interest, and how to, what to do with this in the future. This is the first time I've put together this worksheet, first time I've done it. And I'm just wondering how it works for you. Is this worth doing? Is this useful? Is it interesting? Is it boring? Is this like needs a little more of this, a little less of that? Give me some feedback on how it's happening. As a psychologist, <laughs> this whole presentation was really interesting to me. Oh. Um, I. I, this idea of latent um, qualities, I've never approached it from that point of view. Mm. And um, looking at myself from that point of view uh, was helpful. And um, looking at, at my qualities as a child and looking at um, um, uh, karma from... Uh, past lives uh, coming into this world from uh, and having qualities um, was interesting to me uh, to look at um, okay I came into this world with these kinds of qualities mm. was an interesting um, concept to me this mm. morning mm. and um, and then this sheet was like uh, uh, really helpful to look at I'm going to be studying the Parmes um, and uh, doing a very uh, in-depth study of the Parmes. So uh, this is helpful for me to look at, uh, uh, to uh, look at these things across the top and see that I'm going to be addressing a lot of these particular things. Um, uh, And uh, it's going to be quite helpful. Um, I'm going to make a list and, and look at the, the particular ones that I uh, uh, listed and the parmies that they're going to address. So that's going to be quite helpful for me. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Um, um, uh, so thank you. This, mm. this is very helpful. Okay. Um, I also found it really helpful. I noticed that um, you know, one of my major parmies to work on was equanimity, and it also showed up as a practice on four out of the seven um, latent torments. So it's a really clear direction, which is really appropriate for me right now. So I think it's really been helpful, actually, in guiding. I'm going to do some equanimity practice. By the, by the way, Kamala Masters has a extensive teachings on equanimity online under Dharma Seed. A lot of Dharma talks, 
uh, guided, uh, guided equanimity practices, extensive question and answers. It's just a lot of how to practice equanimity just for your information. Oh, no, that's great. I actually did look at one of her talks recently, but I didn't hear the whole thing. I'm going to look more. It's great. Thanks yeah. for the suggestion. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. So, Steve, thank you very much for your uh, teaching today. Uh, the one thing that, I, that came to my mind as I was looking through this whole list um, is there's just such a, a plethora of practices Perhaps if you had a sheet of references or some way that we could, you know, particularly, I mean, some, some get taught all the time, I mean, Brahma, Brahma Vihars and so forth, but, yeah. you know, like neuroplasticity factors of mind, <laughs> some of those were really intriguing to me because I hadn't really heard yeah, of that. I, and go, I don't so know how to practice where, them, though. <laughs> where do I, you know, where do I go to learn more about pliancy or something like yeah, that, yeah. or the Mahasi factors? So, uh -huh. you know, something that... Um, would get us over the activation energy barrier from you know, this sounds pretty good, but who knows, you know, yeah. to, to just have something. Yeah, so, uh, so a, a source material for all of the practices. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. That sounds like a research project. <laughs> okay, but that's I a guess good what suggestion. I'm, what I'm saying is I'd like you to do that research. And I know, <laughs> I know. I know what you were saying. <laughs> But if anybody wants to do it for me and give it to me, it'll be available to everybody else that does this in the future. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay. Um, I also found it very um, revealing and helpful, and I really enjoyed it, so thank you very much. And um, I love the humor with it. Um, I found the uh, discussions very energizing, and I just somehow got a lot out of being the in... The small group discussions? In group. And um, I thought maybe you could take that even further and on the latent torments, maybe have a discussion on what practices people are using for it and just how it helps them with their torments. Because <laughs> um, I, I would find that energizing too. Yeah. So. But thank you. Got a lot yeah. out of it. Okay, thanks for that feedback. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to say, um, here we go. Um, um, uh, so what I was going to say was I just um, appreciate the practices that are available for the different personality types. I think as other people have said. It's, um, it's helpful even though many of them, as I mentioned earlier, I don't know, but I can find them. Yeah. And then um, the other thing I just wanted to say is, um, and this might out myself as having a wrong view, but I'm not sure I buy into the whole past life thing, and I just don't think it's been confirmed and denied, so, um, or, den you know, I don't have any evidence for it, so I have an open mind about it, but I, it's hard for me to accept it as a, you know, as a absolute. Yeah. I, I guess actually in this, in this, in this, like a day-long workshop, it wouldn't be necessary to say these come from past life. It's just that we come in with, we come in with the baseline mentality and uh, where it came from, we're not, we're not, we're not acknowledging or even speculating on that. We're just saying, here it is. How do you recognize it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thanks. That's, 
because there will be people in every group that are either non-Buddhist or non, you know, don't have that belief in it. You don't need that belief in order to get the benefit of the understanding that these, that there is a baseline mentality. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, thanks. So um, I, I'd like to say uh, thank you very much for that. I, I got a number of insights from the thing, so I was, uh, you know, uh, delighted with that. Um, I, I, I found it just to reiterate the, the discussions very useful. Mm -hmm. um, I got a lot from that. Um, I got a little bit <coughs> overwhelmed with all the different practices. Mm -hmm. I just, <coughs> I, I, you know, I could, I could feel my mind just tuning out a little bit because there was just so much of that. And again, I wouldn't be an experienced Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And I just, again, I, I, I was overwhelmed by that. Um, again, just reiterate, I, I'm not necessarily sure that, it, I don't know enough to know whether I believe in, in bringing things from the past life. Mm -hmm. uh, but the way I think you described it just there, I would... At, for me, I'd be more comfortable with, as you described it there, that we, 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 sure. we come into the, mm -hmm. this life with something. Who, who yeah. knows where that comes from, yeah. but it's, yeah. you know, it's there. But thank you. Okay, yeah, thank you. <coughs> I would find it... Hello? Use that, use that one there, because that one's clearly... clearly... I would find it helpful if you um, started with the baseline mentality types, a, a little bit more expanded description to kind of set the stage. The, the, the last one that we did? Yeah. To do those first? E well, yeah, at least touch on them. Okay. You know, it's like, kind of like, here's where we're going, and there's yeah. these six yeah. baseline personality types, and with some examples like, okay, in a workplace... Imagine the greedy type's going to be acting like this, and the discerning type's going to be, or a family unit, or some social context that's, that there's some type of comparison, yeah. a caricature of each one, if you would, some type of comparison and contrast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Caricature, caricature would caricature. An exaggerated version of each one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Characterization. Caricature. Each. Actually, you know, in the Visuddhi Magga, the Visuddhi Magga is a commentary called The Path of Purification. It's written 500 years after the Buddha by this monk, Buddhaghosa, in Sri Lanka. And he elaborates on these different uh, personality types how they behave, how they dress, how they eat, how they sleep, how yeah. they clean their cottage and everything. But it's all from a monastic point of view. So, really, you're right. That'd be a good idea to kind of put it into a householder's point of view. How would a greedy, versive, deluded, Speculative, yeah. faithful type. Good idea. I like that idea. Now I just got to find somebody to do it for me. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the Facebook page of a greedy type. <laughs> did you want to? Did you? Any further feedback, comments? Questions? Yeah, over here. Uh, first, thank you. And I found this very helpful because I sort of have been going around in this sort of like, a, in terms of practice, like a, a fog. 
Yeah. I don't know, you know, it's like, what am I doing? Who am I? What's... So what, what I really you? found the um, Index of Latent Torments yeah. to be really um, clarifying for me. Oh, yeah. And I thought they were really well explained so well. I mean, I was actually able to understand some of them, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm. Uh, so um, I, I really liked it, and I liked the way um, you, it, it, you sort of made, with both sides of the paper, like this checklist so that I can just go, not that it, I see it as hard and fast, mm -hmm. but gives me a range or a realm in which I'm existing. Mm, mm, mm. Great. Thank you very much. Any other suggestions for improving the whole program or things that didn't work or it can be critical as well as supportive? very much. I really appreciate your willingness to kind of wade through this with me and uh, I hope it was helpful and useful. I found it when I first came upon the whole idea of mental legacies and then got this idea of doing something like this. I got very excited about it and I think that it's worth developing a little further so you'll probably see further iterations of this this whole workshoppy topic in the future. So just know that you've contributed to uh, further development of it, and I'll give you credit in the future, but no royalties. <laughs> 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 so thank you all very much. <laughs>